This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 30th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Alexa Billow talks with Ryan Kennedy, author of a policy forum on giant programs that track global events. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. We cannot produce this podcast without the help of listeners like you. Become a member of AAAS, the world's largest multidisciplinary scientific membership organization and publisher of the Science Family of Journals in September and get 20% off your membership. If you join in October, the 20% discount is gone, but you do get a free backpack. That's what's on offer for October. So visit AAAS.org save 20 to become a member today. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First, we have a story on bringing extinct animals back from beyond the brink. This idea is called de-extinctioning, uh, and it hasn't been done yet, as far as I can tell. But there are many labs working on it. What are some of the arguments for why we should do this, Dave? Well, you might think the argument is to create Jurassic Park, but that's not what scientists are interested in. They're not just interested in creating animals just so we can say, huzzah, we've, we've brought an animal back from the dead. A lot of them are interested in actually the role that these animals played in the ecosystems they left behind. So a couple of the animals at the top of the list are woolly mammoths and passenger pigeons. And both of these animals actually seem to have played a pretty important role in their ecosystems. So woolly mammoths, for example, were really important for maintaining the grasslands of the Arctic tundra that they lived in. And passenger pigeons were actually really important for the health of the forest that they lived in. So the idea of bringing these animals back is not only to help these animals, but to help the environments they came from. And what kind of techniques are being investigated for de-extincting things? Are, are any of them, you know, Jurassic Park style? <laughs> well, kind of. I mean, the first one is called backbreeding, which is really the least the least sort of true de-extinction because basically it involves taking an animal that is already alive and breeding it so it resembles an animal oh, okay. that used to live. So, for example, you know, maybe breeding an elephant with a lot more hair so it looks a little bit more like a woolly mammoth. Most people don't really consider that true de-extinction. So when we're talking about true de-extinction, we're talking about things like cloning, taking an actual cell from an animal that's gone extinct and maybe taking the nucleus out of that cell and putting it into the cell of an animal that's not extinct and trying to grow that up into something that resembles the extinct animal. Also, with the advent of CRISPR, this gene editing technology, scientists have thought about, well, why don't we just sort of take the genes that we know belong to the extinct species and plug those into a very close relative to create a genome that's very similar to that of the extinct species. Now, a lot of this gets into the problem of development. And by development, I mean the situation in the womb of the animal or in the egg of the animal as the 
the hybrid baby is developing. Right. None of these things are perfect because even if you had the exact genome of an extinct animal, it's going to be grown inside a mother. This egg is going to be grown inside a mother that does not belong to that same species. This animal will be raised in an environment perhaps different from the environment it lived in, especially if it lived hundreds or thousands or even millions of years ago, especially. So I don't think anybody's thinking we're going to get 100% accuracy with this. People just want to see how close we can get. Right. And here's why I don't think it's a great idea. (laughs) We get lazy. Why preserve the panda when we can just make one later? Right. And that's a big fear is this idea that, hey, we don't have to worry about our impact on the world anymore because we can just sort of retroactively fix all of our problems. And we're we're even close to being able to do that. And who gets to decide what animals to bring back? Well, it's a good question. And there's really no firm guidelines on how to do this, even who really regulates doing this. And so what's sort of sprung up is independent teams. There's, There's a team now working on the passenger pigeon that hopes to de-extinct the passenger pigeon perhaps in the next 10 to 20 years. But there's not a whole lot of regulations on this right now. Next up, we have a story on making a baby with three parents. This news just broke earlier this week, so we don't have a ton of detail. But a fertility specialist, normally based in New York, went to Mexico and performed some genetic manipulations on an unfertilized egg that was eventually fertilized and became an embryo and then a baby. Uh, Let's start with that, Dave. What exactly was changed about this egg and subsequent embryo? Well, this has to do with mitochondrial diseases. So the mother's egg has a nucleus, but it also has surrounding cytoplasm that has mitochondria in it. And mitochondria have their own DNA, and that DNA can have mutations. And those mutations can cause some pretty serious diseases. One of them is called Lay syndrome, which the couple at the center of this story, they have the uh, mutations for this. And Lay syndrome is lethal. And they actually have had a couple of children who died because of it. So the question was, could this couple conceive by getting rid of the mother's mitochondria and replacing it with somebody else's mitochondria? Right. Because sperm don't supply mitochondria to the embryo. That's right. So how did they go about replacing the maternal mitochondria in this system? So basically what they do is they take the mother's egg cell, they take the nucleus out of it, and they put that in a donor egg cell that has somebody else's mitochondria, and then they fertilize that with the father's sperm. So technically you have three parents because the mother gives the nucleus, the father gives the sperm, and this third person gives basically the mitochondrial DNA. So there's DNA from three different people in a baby, and it was born about five months ago. So what do we know about how it's doing? We don't have a lot of details. We know the baby's healthy, and we know the baby does not appear to have Lay syndrome like his siblings did. But we also know that some of his mitochondria still contain, about 1% to 2% of them, still contain the mother's mitochondrial DNA, which means that this wasn't 100% successful in eliminating the mother's mitochondria from the equation. So one of the odd things here is that this is not exactly an experiment. I mean, the results, if you will, are not published in a peer-reviewed journal. I mean, this is really just a doctor kind of sharing this information. So it's really hard to get at exactly what happened and, and how it compares to other things that have been done already. 
That's right. Well, the results haven't been published yet, although they are slated to be published soon. But that's why this is raising a lot of controversy, because there's really no approval. Uh, there's no federal approval for this technique in the U.S., so the doctor had to go to Mexico, uh, where the restrictions are a bit looser to do the procedure. But that also meant a lot less oversight. And that's concerned a lot of scientists, because they want to know things like, was this the first time this was done, or were there a lot of other attempts that didn't work? And if so, why didn't they work? Were ethicists involved? And what sort of medical follow-up this child is getting? So there are a lot of unanswered questions still at this point. Right. And we're going to keep following this story, but I think we're going to run into that same problem, which is already reported here, is that this stuff, kind of stuff has been happening, not exactly on the sly, but not with public information being available about it for years. Yeah. In fact, in 2003, the same doctor performed a somewhat similar procedure in China, and that didn't actually work out very well. And those results weren't published until about a year ago. And that's why a lot of scientists are calling for more transparency. Lastly, we have a story on our violent roots. People are violent, but we're not the only ones. Other species also kill their conspecifics, their compatriots. A new study suggests that the level of violence, though, within a species is not only heritable, but also predictable. Okay. What are some of the other violent animals out there, Dave? Ground squirrels and tree shrews apparently are pretty violent. A lot of species that live in groups and defend their territories like wolves and chimps also tend to be very violent, whereas species like bats and whales don't kill each other a lot. Now, this is all based on something I decided to call the database of death, which catalogs these things like how often do one, does one kind of animal kill its own kind? What else did they find out about these lethal animals? Right. And this database included more than 1,000 mammals and sort of why and how they died and sort of putting it on an evolutionary tree. And the team found that the more violent your close relatives are, the more violent your species is like to be. And that helped them sort of come up with a predictive number for how violent humans should be against each other. So when they went to look at where humans fit, you know, were we more or less violent than chimps or were we more like bonobos who were kind of on the gentler side of the great apes? Right. We're somewhere in between, which is probably not that surprising. And nearly 4.5% of chimpanzee deaths are caused by another chimp. The team found we're only about 0.7% in bonobos and humans were kind of in the middle at 2%. Let's dig a little bit into where they got that number from. I mean, they looked at what they say 50,000 years of human history to find it. <laughs> well, you know, they predicted that humans would be at 2%. And that's actually what they claim they found um, right. by looking at things like tens of thousands of years of human history via archaeological record, historical record, looking at things like excavations, cultural descriptions. And they sort of put all this stuff together and they said, look, over time, well, first of all, when we were sort of hunter-gatherers, we sort of were at that 2% figure, at least according to what they saw. Then in medieval Eurasia, things got really bad and we were about at 12% rates of killing each other. And now that we've sort of settled in the cities and become a little bit more quote-unquote civilized, that number is down to about 1.3% worldwide. There are a couple of critiques of the story I think are worth talking about, namely that there are styles of violence, which I thought was interesting. You've got your infanticide, you've got your murder, 
they're not the same thing and different species practice them differently. So you can't just quantify lethal violence. You need to look at the kinds of violence there are in order to understand its role and its roots. And then there's the second caveat, the strength of that human history data. Why might that be a problem? Obviously, when you're talking about data that's tens of thousands of years old and trying to get sort of percentages of people killing each other, that's really hard to do and to extrapolate. And again, you have this issue of context because should battlefield deaths count the same as, you know, maybe a missionary being murdered, human sacrifice or infanticide? And can you just sort of all mush these things together and sort of say that they are all sort of part and parcel of the same thing? And that's one of the big questions that critics have. All right. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about printing bones on demand. Also a story about whether bees have emotions. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got an item about whether hundreds of new dams, which are supposed to be a green form of electricity, could actually contribute to climate change. Also a story about whether private companies should be getting into the planet exploration business, planets beyond Earth, that is. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Do you love books but find that you never have the time to actually read them? Well, Audible.com has the perfect solution. Get the audiobook. Listen to those books that you've been meaning to read while you're on the go. At the gym, during your commute, Audible.com has audiobooks from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. Just a really wide selection. Their app is free and works on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. You can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. And unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible, you own your books, so you can access them anytime and anywhere, right from your smartphone. Audible.com also has the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title, anytime, no questions asked. One of my favorite things about Audible has been the way they integrate with the Kindle, so you can get a book for Kindle and then listen as well when you're not able to sit and read. It syncs between these different features. So you can keep reading in your chair and then, oh, I got to get up. I got to do the dishes. You can put on your headphones and listen, picking up from the same place that you left off. And now audible.com is offering just for our listeners a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash science mag today to start your free trial. Again, show your support for the Science Podcast and get a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash science mag. Now we have our intern, Alexa Billo, talking about tracking event data on a global scale. Our networked world gives us an unprecedented ability to monitor and respond to global happenings. Databases monitoring news stories can provide real-time information about events all over the world, like conflicts or protests. However, the databases that currently exist aren't up to the task. Here to tell us about addressing some of the problems with global data collection and interpretation is Ryan Kennedy. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Great to be here. First, can you give us some insight into these large collection programs? What sorts of things are these systems used for, and where did they come from? 
So these systems started quite a while ago. In the 1940s and 1950s, scholars realized that the main source that intelligence analysts and foreign policy pundits used in making predictions about the future was their knowledge about what had happened in the past and the stories that they read in the news about who did what to whom. And there were these efforts to try and systematize it, to take news stories and pull out the who where, what they did, and to whom, and try to make a longer data series that would allow us to both know more about what's going on and what had happened in the past. Now, the problem was that these were pretty limited by the fact that you had human coders, and human coders tended to get bored with it after a while, they tended to not be very accurate, and you couldn't really do it in real time. By the time you had everything coded, it was already old news. In the 1990s, there were some efforts to try and make this something that would be computer-readable. So the computers would do the coding, and you could run them in real time to create much longer data series. Today, we have some very large collection programs that are underway and have really expanded what we're able to do. GDELT and IQs are two of the largest ones. These expand across millions of news stories collected from hundreds of sources around the world and sometimes in different languages. And from that, we're able to get some very nice analyses of where events are happening and also to get predictions about what's likely to happen in the future. Can you tell us some of the successes that have been seen with this technology so far? Sure. In spite of all the problems that we identify in our paper, IQs is actually a great example of a success story with this kind of data. Using this IQs data, there is a team out of Lockheed Martin that was able to win a DARPA-sponsored contest that was looking at trying to identify and predict specific events that occurred within the Asia-Pacific Command. These included domestic political crises, rebellions, insurgencies, ethnic and religious violence, and international crises. So their ability to outperform a number of other systems, including just using things like agent-based models or traditional social science data, really shows that there is value added to this event data. Where's social media in all of this? How does this overlap with Twitter sort of giving us a record of everything that's happening all at once? The issue with Twitter is that it encompasses primarily certain events. It encompasses those events that you are experiencing as an individual and that you want to communicate with other individuals. So things like organizing protests, Twitter is pretty good at picking up when people are talking about meeting up for a protest event. Twitter is not very good at picking up when countries are interacting with each other or when businesses are interacting with each other or things that the news media does a better job of covering. So I think that social media is going to be put into this framework eventually, but right now they kind of tend to pick up on different events. So you use these large-scale news crunching programs to pick up on those sorts of things that social media and search monitoring can't, these major world events. What are some of the problems with the programs that currently exist? So news articles are both very easy and very complex to code. On the one hand, reporters are generally trained to write within the first sentence who, what, where, when, and why. And they also include a date stamp and usually a line telling where the article is coming from. 
this you would think would make it really easy to parse these sentences into their component parts and put together who did what to whom, when and where. In reality, it's much more difficult than that. So, for example, you have events that occurred in the past. One of the things that we noticed in the GDELT system was that it reported a lot of instances of uses of weapons of mass destruction and ethnic cleansing or unconventional violence. Now, there aren't a lot of these, and we know that there aren't a lot of these, but what happens is when they occur, because they tend to be pretty rare, newspapers tend to report on them in a regular basis as historical events. So, for example, the commemoration of the dropping of the nuclear bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki is something that is going to be reported on about every year around the same time. And what we noticed was that GDELT, depending upon how the article was written, would end up picking up that the U.S. had dropped a nuclear bomb on Japan about every year, which, of course, didn't happen. There were other things that we found were problems. For example, if you include two countries in an advertisement to try to get people to apply for a job, this was coded as two countries making an optimistic statement. So there are all these contextual things that can make interpreting newspapers very difficult for a computer. And what we noticed was that a lot of the technology which was being utilized in these systems was relatively old technology that wasn't picking up on this context that human coders can pick up on very easily and that computational methods have been developed for more recently to pick up on and to improve this coding. In your paper, you propose certain measures to refine event data collection, and they've worked in other fields, you point out. Do you see any barriers to implementing those recommendations? Probably the biggest barrier that we have is institutional. For all the advancements in event data coding, a lot of the advancement has taken place among relatively small, isolated groups that have the ability to afford these large corpuses of news data. And what we really need is we need an investment into the development of event data that allows for corpuses that can be utilized by a variety of teams to where a number of different approaches can be tested. We need greater interdisciplinarity within these teams, incorporating much broader groups, both within computer science as well as the social sciences. And also, we need for the government or some other organization to deal with these very tricky issues of copyright and how to both defend the rights of the news agencies to make money off of their product and to give us effective test beds for developing and testing event data coding systems. Suppose everything you suggest in your paper is implemented and we've got all these global event trackers working like gangbusters. What amazing things will we be able to do with them? There's a picture that just pops into my head when you talk about this, and it's an old Superman comic, and he's going around and picking up what's going on all around the world, and from this trying to divine what is going to happen. The way to imagine it is imagine if you had the ability to read all the news articles in the world and kind of figure out what they were telling you and what the patterns of those news articles were. What would you do with that? If you think about that, that kind of image is now what we're almost able to do with event data. 
able to take millions of news articles, these reports about events from around the world, and distill them into the kind of information that we can use to both track and predict future events. So think about some of the options here. You could use it, for example, to track where humanitarian crises are likely to happen. You can use it to figure out where you're likely to have instability in the future. In business, tracking the relationships between different companies, international relations, the relationships between different countries, all of these things could be improved with good event data. So the goal is to become Superman. <laughs> the goal is to, isn't that always the goal? Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Ryan Kennedy and colleagues write about event data monitoring in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. <laughs>